Mac Folklore Radio, read by Derek. My least popular episodes are those that aren't strictly Mac-related, so I'm going out on a limb again and covering the intent behind one of the candidates to replace the classic Mac OS following the failure of the Copeland Project. Brian Cantrell at Papers We Love 2015. There were two companies I found that actually believed in OS innovation in 1996. One of them was Sun. The other one was B. B, yeah, exactly. We need to have the... You gotta get the lighter going for B. B, and you're like, B, like a bumblebee? No, 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 like the verb to be. Like, the verb to be. Well, it was like, it was before Google, okay? No one bothered to like, make their names Googleable. B was a really interesting company. B was developing their own hardware and their own operating system, BIOS, which, was, which I thought was very interesting. And they were very invested in it. It was a bunch of Apple refugees. The Wizards of B Incorporated. Interview by Dave Mark, Mac Tech, January 1997. We're doing the radio interview thing again, but with three people. So this is Dave Mark. And this will be the two interview subjects. The B-Box is a rare beast indeed. A very cool piece of hardware coupled with a brand new from the ground up operating system. This special B-oriented issue of Mac Tech just wouldn't be <clears throat> complete without a chance to speak with two of the principals of B Incorporated, CEO Jean-Louis Gasset, and Vice President of Engineering, Eric Ringwald. Historical note, the timeline is a little fuzzy here, but it looks like Steve Sackerman later took over as VP of Engineering, and Eric Ringwald became Chief Technical Officer. You may remember Eric as the architect of MultiFinder. Can you tell us a little about the birth of B Incorporated? Jean-Louis. While at Apple, I saw the problems arising from the growing complexity of the Mac OS. At the same time, we envied some of the features of the Amiga, its support for audio and video applications, and a truly multitasking OS, to name a few. We started B with the idea that we could free ourselves from the problems of the Mac OS Sausage Factory and build something like the Amiga without Commodore. How does the B-Box fit in with its peers, computers such as the Macintosh or a Windows NT box? One of the things we've tried to emphasize is that we don't see the BOS displacing Windows or the Mac OS or trying to slay any other Goliaths. There will be nearly 70 million PCs sold this year, many of them into office automation or home productivity and other non-performance-oriented audiences. Over the last year, we've focused on an even tighter segment, computer developers and geeks. We're looking for the guide geeks in the market. Those individuals who define new directions and new applications. We're not going to pretend that we're smart enough to predict the future all by ourselves. We need help. That's why our relationships with developers are placed at the center of what we're doing. I know that Code Warrior is the principal development environment for the B-Box. I've also heard of a tool called AppSketcher. Can you talk about your overall tool strategy and describe the development cycle? Eric. As a small company, we didn't set out to do a new OS in a new development environment. We couldn't help but notice that just about every Power Mac developer on the planet was using MetroWorks Code Warrior, so we decided to build our system around that. That meant adopting Apple's preferred executable file format, PEF, which is what Code Warrior emits. It also meant supporting the Apple IBM PowerPC runtime under BOS, so that code generated by the compiler and files emitted by the linker would be 100% compatible. 
Early BOS developers did cross-development on the Mac, and when native BOS CodeWarrior became available, they could easily switch over. AppSketcher is an interface builder-like tool designed to work with the BOS class library. It was created by an enthusiastic B developer called Lorien International. It's really going to help with the busy work of designing user interfaces on the BOS. Let's talk about the BOS API. When you say it's object-oriented, what does that really mean? Eric. Essentially, the entire API of the system is presented to the developer as a collection of C++ classes. With very few exceptions, no pun intended, these classes are organized into software kits, then segregated by function. For example, the interface kit contains all the classes associated with user interface and drawing on the screen. Of course, the Macintosh has an API which is a flat collection of Pascal and C procedure calls. Any attempt at bringing object-oriented programming to the Mac have taken the form of class libraries layered on top of the native API. All the current frameworks, PowerPlant, MacApp, the Think class libraries, are additional layers of code standing between the programmer and the native OS implementation. It's not hard to see the benefits of having an API that was conceived from the ground up as being object-oriented. It's less a question of lipstick on a chicken and a much cleaner and more natural way to program. Lipstick on a chicken is also what Bill Gates allegedly called the Apple Novell effort to port macOS to x86, aka the Star Trek project. The B-Box is said to be multi-threaded. What exactly does that mean? Well, the underlying kernel provides separate threads of execution with protected address spaces. However, when we say the entire OS is multi-threaded, we mean that not only is the raw capability there, but the rest of the system, the UI implementation, the file system, the storage server, actually make heavy use of multi-threading and multi-processing. This ensures that all applications benefit from the MTMP nature of the kernel and hardware without having to explicitly code for it. The application server that implements the user interface is a good example of this. Every time an application creates a window, two threads are created by the system. One runs in the application server's address space, the other runs in the application client's address space, and both interact to maintain the contents of the window in a lively and responsive fashion, regardless of whatever else is going on in the system. This kind of re-entrant, multi-threaded implementation of a basic system service ensures that the fundamental advantages of a multi-threaded, multi-processing system are consistently delivered to the user without requiring explicit programming from the application developer. Personal note. The marketing phrase they used for this was pervasive multi-threading. And that wasn't just hype. I ran BOS 5 on a Pentium 133 for a long time, and the responsiveness of the user interface was just unbelievably quick, even under heavy load, which isn't hard to build up on a Pentium 133. In fact, the user interface was so responsive that when I upgraded to an Athlon 750, it was actually a disappointment because it felt no more responsive than it did on the Pentium 133. It really put the first several releases of Mac OS X to shame. As one B forum poster observed, BOS was built to be fast and responsive. Mac OS X was built to be stable and beautiful. There's a difference. The other mainstream multi-threaded OS on the market is Windows NT4. Can you draw some differences between BOS and NT4? Eric, NT4 has a great kernel. 
It's fast, reliable, and feature-rich. However, not all of what the user sees with NT4 is written this way. At the risk of repeating myself, although the NT4 kernel provides multiprocessing and multithreading, the Win32 API and user interface implementation that sit atop the kernel are not written to take advantage of multiprocessing and multithreading. So even though they're sitting on top of a great kernel, you can still click in title bars, bring down menus, drag windows around, and cause other visual components of the system to lock up while the mouse is down, just like on a Macintosh. And unfortunately, that wasn't just a visual and cosmetic problem. Now, you might say, why does that matter? Well, for those of you who never suffered with the classic Mac OS, we used to brag it was so much easier to, for example, run a web server compared to Unix, and it was so much safer than on Windows. This was back when the ping of death was still common, so bear with me. There was just one little problem. When you hold the mouse button down on classic Mac OS, all other activity grinds to a halt. All of it. If you're holding down the mouse button while your FTP server is dishing out a large file, or Netscape is busy downloading something, nothing is sent or received across the wire until you release the mouse button. Once, when a smart aleck friend of mine was visiting, he walked over to the LC630 I was using as a web and FTP server, and he held down the mouse button. He grinned and proudly declared, I'm performing a denial-of-service attack on your web server. Later, he admitted some Windows software had the same problem if the application in question wasn't multi-threaded or didn't have a separate background process doing the dirty work. There was an extension back in 1997 called Menu Tasking Enabler that sort of solved this problem on classic macOS under certain conditions. I remember it being useful for Mac HTTP, WebStar, and NetPresence. Sadly, it seems to have been lost to the mists of time. I'm always in nostalgia mode, but I definitely don't miss this aspect of the classic Mac OS. So while I would recommend that my grandmother use NT4 in a closet for a high-performance reliable file server with no user interface to speak of, I don't think it stacks up to the BOS as a next-generation platform for highly responsive graphics and multimedia. How much of BOS was written in C++? Eric. Almost all of it. The kernel itself is in C, along with about 3,000 lines of assembler to handle the very lowest processor-dependent pieces. The kernel kit and network kit both have low-level C interfaces, along with higher-level C++ interfaces. The rest of the BOS is C++. How are you dealing with the fragile base class problem? Eric, we've spent a lot of time looking at the problem from many different angles. Obviously, we need a solution that allows us flexibility to change the system while ensuring developers' future compatibility. We've looked at IBM's system object model for some time now. We're concerned with a couple of issues. There are many, many, many restrictions imposed on language features using SOM. No function overloading is permitted, which is a major issue since it's a key feature of object-oriented programming. You can't pass parameters to constructors. You can't have static data members or public data members. The list goes on. On top of this, our tests on SOM indicate that it would cause a large performance hit to the overall system, something that goes against the very grain of our company. Basically, SOM gives us much more than we want. It solves more problems than the fragile base class problem, and it tries to solve binary object compatibility between languages and distributed objects. At this point, we're mainly interested in solving the first problem and delivering performance. 
While SOM would provide solutions to other problems, we're not sure how many applications would actually take advantage of them. Given that every application would experience the performance hit, SOM is probably a case of using an atom bomb to remove a wart. Classic macOS users, remember that thing called SOM objects that sometimes showed up in your extensions folder? Now you know what that was. As they say, you haven't heard of it for a reason. We also considered the simple solution of padding our classes with extra data and extra virtual functions. This isn't very elegant, of course, but it has a number of positives. It doesn't impact performance at all, except for slightly more memory required within objects. It's a simple solution that allows us to transition to a better solution should one become available, specifically one that has less of a performance hit. Most of all, this solution places no burden on the developers. Unlike SOM, it doesn't impact the way they write code. They can exploit all the features of C++, including overloading, static data, etc., and this is extremely important to us. An operating system shouldn't put up more hurdles than it has to in order to develop new code. Furthermore, it shouldn't needlessly suck down performance. So we're going for the simpler solution for now. It's not perfect, but we're not willing to take the performance and complexity hits within SOM. We'll also investigate a versioning system so that BOS transparently supports multiple versions of the same library. This will enable us to gracefully transition to an improved scheme down the road. Since many of our readers have not yet gotten their hands on a B-Box, can you tell me about the box itself? Why did you do the B-Box hardware implementation rather than using another vendor's box? We're producing the B-Box for two key reasons. First, from a purely tactical perspective, we needed low-cost multiprocessor hardware in order to build the BOS itself and to prove out the multi-threading and multiprocessing architecture. Second, we're committed to the idea that multiprocessing hardware should not be expensive. It should be a mainstream solution anyone can take advantage of. B's slogan at the time was, one processor per person is no longer enough. I remember that made me laugh back in 1995, but ultimately they were right, though it took another decade for that to become commonplace. So from B itself, you'll see only multiprocessor, media-feature-rich B-Box designs, since that's where we see the future of personal computing centered. The dual PowerPC 603 B-Box that we sell today is a machine that mixes multiple processors with mainstream, low-cost, standard PC components. Two PowerPC microprocessors, three PCI slots, and five ISA slots. There are no custom components on the board, we have intentionally stayed away from that resource sink. On the back of the B-Box, you'll find SCSI parallel keyboard muscles. Here to take over is Ivan Ryszwalski at Systems We Love 2017. Then you had what you get around on the backside of the box, where I think they started a committee for what ports do we want to put on this machine, <laughs> and just didn't know where to stop. Because you got to have the obvious ones. You got your keyboard and your mouse port. Uh, SCSI for external disks, because eventually you're going to fill up the machine inside. Parallel port for a printer. Uh, then a serial port, maybe two. No, let's go four serial ports. <laughs> uh, we want some audio, so we'll put both uh, line level and headphone and microphone jacks on it. Two analog joystick ports. 
since you've got this audio designed to hook it up to you know, your headphones or your stereo system, well, we'll put a couple of ports on there. You can wire up a couple of LEDs and use it to control your, you know, your TV, your sound system, whatever, right from the system. A two pairs of MIDI ports, and then this called the Geek Port, which is a 37-pin connector which has 16 digital I.O. lines, four analog to digital, four digital to analog, plus a bunch of five volt, plus and minus 12 volt lines for it. So if you wanted to wire something up, you're gonna find some way to be able to hook it up to this system. <laughs> the Geek port is protected by a set of fuses to prevent you from accidentally frying your motherboard. The B-Box uses standard 72-pin RAM, Standard floppy drives, standard CD-ROM drives, standard graphics cards, and network cards. We've really tried to make a system that's as configurable and inexpensive as possible for a multiprocessor system. Will I be able to build a macOS app on the BOS? Will I be able to run Macintosh applications on the BOS? Building macOS apps on the BOS is really a question for tools vendors like MetroWorks. There's no reason that can't be done. We're using PEF, PowerPC, other standards, so an application could at least be built. As we know from our early days experience with creating BOS applications on macOS, which you can still do, cross-platform development usually requires a few more tools to support debugging, etc. The second question, macOS compatibility with the BOS, can probably be broken into two parts. The first is data, hardware, and network compatibility. We are intensely interested in this area. With the BOS for Power Macintosh product, we're supporting standard Power Mac hardware. Why didn't we wait for Chirp? Because we're impatient. Steve Jobs' question and answer session at WWDC 1997. Yeah, you mentioned how good it is that Apple controls the hardware, or at the very least that Apple controls uh, something <coughs> like Chirp, which is the hardware spec. Uh -huh. And indeed, I hear really good things about it. I hear that Apple, or I hear that Chirp has really fast bus speeds. I hear they've really improved the I.O. subsystem. And then I came to the conference, I actually talked to some of the people working on it. And on the cloning side, I hear that Chirp is done. They've already finished the hardware. They're ready to go into production. I talked to some people here at Apple working on the software side. And they said, well, that software side is actually done too. It's all waiting on some weird negotiations going on with the cloners. And then there's rumor going on that the reason that's caught up in negotiations is because Apple's concerned that the performance of Chirp is good enough that it's going to cannibalize some of their own markets. And it seems to me there's a conflict of interest here between Apple's own hardware and some of the cloning hardware where... Yeah, I don't believe that's true at all. I mean, the person running hardware at Apple, I have known for a decade, his name is John Rubenstein. I trust him with my life. He's the best... Uh, hardware leader I have ever seen in my life. He's really, really, really good. He comes from very high-performance systems. And what his expertise is, is putting a lot of those high-performance systems in silicon so they can be really cheap. Right? He's really good at that. He's really good at leading teams of very talented engineering managers and engineers. And what he wants to do is build some kick-ass stuff. Because the Mac hardware is not at the top of the food chain, let's just say. And we want to get it there. And we are going to get it there. So if there was something ready to go that was really good, I promise you, John would be shipping it yesterday. Okay. And in terms of the clone makers, I know that what John is pushing for very strongly, which I support 100%, is to tell the clone makers they can build their own hardware. 
That's the easiest thing to do. Don't be limited by what Apple does or does not release. Build your own. There's a billion people out there building hardware. Look at the PC clone business. They all build their own hardware. They could have people build it for them. They could have people design it for them. So release them out of the bondage that they can only use Apple hardware. And they can do whatever they want. Matter of fact, they could build Rhapsody boxes with Intel processors in them if they wanted to. They could do whatever they wanted to. And that's where I think, that's where I'm hoping Apple goes. So you don't see any conflict of interest there between Apple's hardware where a lot of Apple makes its money and the clone? If I can tell you, no, I don't. I, all I can tell you is I know this 100% to be true. If Apple had a hot product, it would be shipping it tomorrow, okay? And they have shipped a few hot products recently. And if there were any more before when the next batch is coming out, they'd be shipping them instantly. Apple's about having hot products. So nothing is being held up that's any good. I guarantee you that. Chirp wasn't coming fast enough for us, and we decided it wasn't that hard to get the software running on current Apple hardware designs. So you'll be able to set up both the macOS and the BOS on a Power Mac in a dual boot setup, just as you would be able to do with Chirp. Basically, we're delivering Chirp today. The BOS is TCPIP native, which is proving to be the single protocol that all platforms can agree upon, mainly due to the internet. We're also going to be looking at Apple Talk in the future, but first we'll see what initial customers tell us. Obviously, we want to support the printers and other devices currently available, data compatibility, both standard data and the ability to read common application formats, is at the top of the list for us and for most of our developers. In addition, the BOS in the Q1 release will be able to support the macOS HFS disk format as an external file system. This will allow you to see all of your Mac files and data from within the BOS and make use of it in BOS applications. The issue of macOS binary application compatibility is more complex. Based on the discussions within the development community within the last few months, it's accepted that it is possible. One approach would be similar to the Macintosh application environment, Apple's product for Unix systems where the macOS runs in a window. It may be somewhat simpler because you know you're running on a power PC and you have the ROMs in the hardware. Another approach is to do what Windows NT does with DOS applications. Build each old binary a virtual Mac. The advantage of this approach is that you get some of the benefits of memory protection, even with older applications. However, there are other issues with this approach that might make it more difficult to deliver. B is committed to delivering hardware, network, and data compatibility first. We're looking at macOS binary compatibility, as are a number of our developers, but we haven't made any decisions yet. I spent a lot of time with BOS from 2000 to 2001. Nothing ever became of these plans, certainly not double-clickable Mac applications. All we had was the third-party Sheepshaver emulator and HFS support. I never used it since it didn't support HFS Plus, so even that may have been read-only, I'm not sure. How do you feel about Apple's recent troubles and their future? Lead times for publishing magazine articles could be a few weeks to a couple of months, so this interview was likely conducted at least several weeks before December 1996, when Apple acquired Next. Keep that in mind. Jean-Louis I signed up with Apple in December of 1980, the day of the IPO. 
doomsayers were already predicting Apple's demise for failing to support standards such as CPM and 8-inch floppy disks. In 1982, there was the Apple III fiasco, then the Lisa in 1983. In 85, common wisdom declared the Macintosh stillborn, yet each time it managed to rebound. Apple enjoys a strong user and developer following. With a new management team and healthier finances, I see every reason for Apple to come back. Where do you see the computer industry going? Are there still frontiers to be explored? Still money to be made for the small developer? Jean-Louis, the computer industry keeps renewing itself for simple, well-known reasons. There's never enough computing power, never enough bandwidth, never enough storage, and fortunately, semiconductor and other material technologies keep providing more capacity that software is only too happy to fill. As for new frontiers, three years ago, the web wasn't visible, and there is plenty to do in digital media simulations of all sorts that will keep the industry humming for a long time. Thanks for tuning in. You can find more stories or join the Very Quiet Discord server for this podcast at www.macfolkloreradio.com.